0: Welcome to Under the Oaks. I'm Lauren Thompson. And I'm Pastor Trent Zari. Welcome. Uh, We have a special treat today. We're actually recording live here at WKLC Studios in front of a, uh, well, a a live studio audience. (laughs) So I might add, uh, thanks, Mom and Dad. They're, They're a little rowdy. So the last episode, we rounded up, or we, we finished up our excursus into the law, the Ten Commandments, and we talked about how futile it is for those who seek to gain salvation by means of the law, because by the law, no man will be justified in God's sight. And uh, we said, well, where does that leave us? Where, is that, where does that point us then? If, if we can't get to heaven by trying to be a good person, by trying to live according to the golden rule... Or by trying to follow the commandments, what hope is there? And of course, humanly speaking, there is no hope. There's nothing we can do to, to climb our way to heaven, to earn our way to heaven, or to somehow merit or, or uh, earn that spot in heaven. So naturally, in this episode, we're going to talk about the important work of Jesus Christ, the Savior, the, the promised Savior, We read through a short Bible history lesson in our last episode where we talked about some of the promises of the Savior contained in the Old Testament and really how all of the scriptures in the Old Testament point us forward to Christ and the fulfillment of God's promises of a Savior from sin. Beginning way back in Genesis when Adam and Eve fell into sin, there was that promise reiterated to Abraham and his offspring that through his seed all nations would be blessed. So today we're going to pick up with those promises, and we're going to ask the question, well, did that promised Messiah and Savior come? Did God hold good on his promises? And if you've you've been with us thus far, I'm guessing that you kind of know the answer to that question. But let's take a look at what the New Testament says. In Luke chapter 2, we read, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now, that name Christ simply means Messiah or the, the anointed one. It was the term used for that promised Savior, the Messiah. Uh, sometimes people think Jesus Christ is his first and last name. You know, so Jesus would be his first name and Christ would be the last name. But no, really Jesus is his name. Christ is the office that he, hold, that he fulfills, that of the Messiah. So we see that already at his birth narrative there in Luke chapter 2. In John chapter 4, a woman said to Jesus, This is the woman at the well, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So Jesus literally identifies himself as that long promised Messiah. In Matthew chapter 11, we read, Now when John heard in prison, this would be John the Baptist, about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So, in response to that question of John the Baptist, uh, Jesus points to the scriptures. This is a passage from Isaiah uh, that would say that the Messiah, his time would be marked by the healing of the blind, giving sight to the blind, letting the lame walk, lepers being cleansed, the deaf hearing, the dead raised, and so on and so forth. Well, those are exactly the things that we see Jesus doing in his earthly ministry. Marking him as the fulfillment of those prophecies. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus said, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So here we see Jesus himself give us insights into those Old Testament scriptures. He says, everything that was written about me in those Old Testament scriptures, and he he summarizes it by calling it the Law of Moses, that would be the first five books of the Old Testament, the Prophets and the Psalms, the rest of the Old Testament. Uh, Everything written about me in those books must be fulfilled. And so to read the Old Testament properly, again, I've said this many times now, is to see it centering on the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus himself tells us. In Matthew chapter 1, we read, Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. Now, that name Jesus actually means Savior. So, it's descriptive of what he actually came to do, which was to save people from their sins. We hear the angel uh, proclaiming that to Mary right there. In John chapter 14, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we see, again, that there's no way to God except through a Savior, and that Savior being Jesus Christ. Those are the words of Jesus himself. Those are the words of the scriptures. We see that also in um, the book of Acts. We hear, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, the builders. Which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So, you know, from passages like these, we see that Jesus of Nazareth uh, is identified as the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, the Christ, the Anointed One. And the New Testament and all of the scriptures essentially proclaim him as the only, the only Savior of all people, and the only way to heaven, the only way to God, the only reason we have access to God. So, obviously, in the Bible, Jesus is called a number of different names. He's called Lord, he's called Redeemer, Savior, he's called the Word, the Word made flesh, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Son of David, and Emmanuel, which means God with us. In the Old Testament, Jesus is also called the angel of the Lord. We talked about that, and I think in a previous episode, uh, there's many references in the Old Testament to a specific, not just an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord. In fact, it's the angel of the Lord who appears to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. And it becomes apparent that this is no created angel like the rest of the angels. This is, in fact, God himself. So, uh, the earliest church fathers would point to that that reference to a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity before he took on human flesh. Now, establishing that Jesus is identified as the Messiah doesn't really tell us all that we, we need to know about who he is and what he's come to do. So let's talk a little bit about the person of Jesus Christ. Obviously, if you were to go around and ask people who is Jesus Christ? What, what are some of the answers we might get, Lauren? Oh, he was a great teacher. A great teacher, yep. I think a lot, a lot of people consider that's about as far as it goes. Exactly. So people are willing to call Jesus a good person, a good teacher, a prophet of God, a good example, a guru of sorts. I mean, on par with something like Buddha or whatever. Right. But uh, obviously, that's not getting us to the point where we really understand who he is and what he's come to do and why he needed to be, in fact, God in the flesh. So we're going to explore a little bit about what the Bible has to say about the divinity of Jesus, and we'll talk why that's so important to us. First of all, does the Bible say that Jesus is even God? You know, I've heard some people say, well, the Bible doesn't really say Jesus is God. And I always chuckle because uh, that's simply just not true. Uh, not only does it say that, but it says it in many different places. Jesus himself identifies himself as God in the flesh. The scriptures continue to point us to that fact over and over and over. So, for instance, in 1 John chapter 5, it says, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son Jesus Christ, and he is the true God and eternal life. So, very clearly there, Jesus Christ, he is true God and eternal life. We hear Thomas, after the resurrection, proclaim to Jesus, my Lord and my God. He makes that confession there when he sees the resurrected Christ, when he's able to put his hands in his side and in the nail marks in his hands and so on. Matthew chapter 16, Simon Peter gave this confession. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So Peter uh, makes the good confession. Luke chapter 17, we have the, the account of the healing of the lepers. And it says, one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turning back, praised God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, uh, why would he fall at Jesus' feet? In reverence. Okay, so let's, let's take a look at what the rest of that verse, these verses talk about. It says, now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? How did this leper who was cleansed, how did he give praise to God? Bowing down to him. Yeah, he fell at Jesus' feet. So the, the point there is connect the dots. So he's worshiping Jesus and he's acknowledging that he is God. Jesus himself says that there was no one found to give praise to God. And who was he giving praise to? He's giving praise to Jesus. So here's a clear instance where even the leper confessed that Jesus is the Savior God. John chapter 1, we read In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was with God was God. He was in the beginning with God. So, we see some of the attributes of God here ascribed to Jesus. He is without beginning, without end. He is eternal, which is obviously something that we described about God in a previous episode. Now, this is an interesting verse. I once had uh, Jehovah's Witnesses come to, or were they Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons? Now, I don't remember. This was a long time ago. And they were trying to refute the idea that Jesus was God. And I, I didn't know my Bible super well at the time. I mean, this is before I went to school and everything. And, but I knew it well enough that I say, well, let's, let's open your Bible and let's take a look at John chapter 1, because I, I knew this verse. And uh, lo and behold, they opened their Bible, and it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. And I said, what, what translation is this? Uh, and they said, well, this is a, uh, must have been Jehovah's Witnesses, I think. Uh, I don't remember what the name of the translation was now off hand, but it was interesting that the translation was not the same as we read. And notice the subtle difference. It doesn't say that Jesus was just a God, and they would say, well, he was a God in the same sense that you and I can become gods. He was he was certainly not equal to the Father. He certainly wasn't eternal and all these types of things. So, no, it's not that he is a God. He is God. The word was God. It literally says there. Now, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He's unchangeable. Now, that's one of those attributes that we ascribed to God, or I should say that the scriptures ascribed to God Himself as we went through the attributes of God in an earlier lesson. In John chapter 1, uh, Nathanael says to Jesus, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. So, how, how did Jesus recognize him? How did he know that he was there under that tree? Obviously, this is surprising to Nathanael himself, so it's likely that Jesus wasn't even in the, in the close vicinity of it. Uh, this is something that he sees as the all-knowing God. Now, obviously, that's not the only reference to Jesus' omniscience. Uh, in John chapter 21, for instance, Peter says to Jesus, Lord, you know everything He is omniscient. He is all-knowing. And of course, again, that's something that we only say about God. We can't say about any person. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So even Nicodemus acknowledges, based on what he's seen Jesus do, And the miracles that he's performed, uh, nobody can do that unless God is truly with them. So the miracles attest to Jesus' divinity. Only God can do the things Jesus did. Raise the dead, heal the, the sick and the diseased, walk on water, you name it. In John chapter 1, we read, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So, Remember creation itself, we say in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Here we see even Jesus himself, that nothing was made without him and through him all things were made. So he is also the creator God. In Hebrews chapter one, it says, he, that is Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So there we have the work of preservation, preserving creation itself ascribed to the person of Jesus. John chapter 5, Jesus said, all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So he himself says that he is equal in honor to God the Father, equal in glory, equal in power equal in, in uh, praise and worthiness to be worshipped. As it says in Hebrews chapter 1, let all God's angels worship him, that is, Jesus the Christ. And in the book of Revelation chapter 5, we read, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So we could we could go on with many other verses, but from these verses, we see that the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus Christ is indeed true God, God in the flesh, uh, because it ascribes to him the names of God, the attributes or the characteristics of God, the works of God that only God could do in the miracles and so on, and then the honor and glory that we would normally say is associated or ascribed to God alone are given to Jesus. So, Very clearly, the Bible teaches that Jesus is, in fact, God in the flesh. Now, what about the other side? Was he truly a man, or did he just appear to be a man, but not really take on human flesh? Now, there were heresies like that that circulated in the early church. People denied that he actually took on human flesh, or that he only appeared to take on a human body. So, what does the Bible say about the humanity of Jesus, his humanness. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, we read there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So we've just talked about how the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus is God, but here just as clearly, it teaches that he's man, the man, Christ Jesus. He's a mediator between God and men. In Philippians chapter 2, It says, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So, he took on human flesh and blood. We say he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And he he was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. That would be you and me. So, very much a human being, 100% just as you and I are. Luke chapter 24, after the resurrection, Jesus appears to his disciples and he says, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So he can point to his flesh and bones. He, he bleeds blood. He's every bit as human as you and I are. And we'll talk about why that's important in just a minute. Matthew chapter 26, we see some of the attributes that we would normally ascribe to uh, human beings alone, right? So, it says that Jesus said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. So, he experiences human emotion. He experiences human needs. So, the Bible says that Jesus was born. Well, that's something only a human being can do. Uh, You and I were born that he, he slept, he got tired, he needed to sleep. We find him sleeping in the back of the boat on a cushion. Uh, we know that Jesus got hungry at times. We know that he got thirsty, just like you and I do. We know that he, he cried, he wept at the grave, at the tomb of his good friend Lazarus. And we know that he suffered. He experienced pain and suffering, just as you and I do. And he even died. Now, that last one, you might say, well, okay, but uh, really death is something that only re- humans, uh, in contrast to the spiritual world, I suppose, can experience uh, because death came into the world because of sin. Now, you could argue and say, well, animals die and other things die too. Well, that's true because they also live in a sinful, fallen world. But the point here is that Jesus died. He was truly man. He experienced all of our human life from cradle to the grave. All of the emotions, all of the things that we go through in terms of physical hunger and need for rest, all of those things. So just from that small uh, smattering, I'll use a big technical term there, smattering of verses, we see that the Bible expressly calls Jesus a man. It tells us Jesus has a human body and soul it tells us that Jesus had human qualities, characteristics, attributes. So that kind of leaves us with a little bit of a conundrum. There's another big term for you, right? Who then is this Jesus? I mean, it seemed like we just spent a while establishing that Jesus is God, and then we just spent a little while establishing that Jesus is true man. Now, which one is it? That doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. Is he God or is he man? That's the question. You know, answer me, Lauren. Uh. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Who then is Jesus Christ? Matthew chapter 16. Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So is he true God? Yes. Uh, John one says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Is he true man? Answers yes. Both things are true. He is hundred percent true God. He is a hundred percent true man. And you say, well, that's two hundred percent. That can't be. Ah, but in the person of Jesus Christ, both things are absolutely true according to the scriptures. So he is true God and true man in one person. Now. We'll get into some of the the technical uh, explanations of that dual nature of Christ in a later episode. But in this, for this discussion, we really want to ask ourselves the question, why? Why does the Bible go to such great lengths to establish these two things, that Jesus is true God and that he is true man? So, and these questions that we're about to ask ourselves now uh, make no mistake these are absolutely fundamental to understanding the Christian faith to understanding our salvation and if you deny either one whether Jesus was true god or whether he is true man if you deny either one of those things you have no savior now that sounds like a pretty big implication a pretty big deal so we would first of all let's 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 uh, address the question why did Jesus need to be true man to be our savior. And again, we could point to a lot of different verses, but we'll start with St. Paul's letter to the Galatians in chapter 4. He says, "When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons." Now, Uh, When we think about the law, we've just spent a great deal of time exploring that a couple episodes ago and uh, for many episodes before that. We said that the law condemns us, that those who don't fulfill the law are under a curse, that the law demands perfect righteousness and perfect love from us, and none of us have fulfilled it. None of us have kept that standard. So here, St. Paul points out that Jesus was born under the law, so he places himself under the law. Remember now, as true God, he, he, is, he is the author of the law. He doesn't, he doesn't, he's not bound by any law. He's the one who gives the law. He's not bound by it. But nevertheless, when God takes on human flesh, he places himself under the law. Why would he do that? Well, St. Paul says, to redeem, to buy back, to purchase those who are under the law. Where you and I have failed to keep the law, Jesus has stepped in as our our substitute to keep that law perfectly in our place in order to fulfill all righteousness so that he can clothe us with his perfect righteousness. So if he's not truly man, then he can't truly live under the law, and we are in big trouble. So that's the first part of it. In Hebrews chapter 2, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So, notice again here we have a reference to death, and I kind of made a big deal about this just a couple minutes ago. But only a human being can die. And... God doesn't die. He's eternal. He's without beginning, without end. But in the person of Jesus Christ, who is true God and true man, we have a Savior who is able to die. So, he had to be truly human in order to put himself under the law, to fulfill the law in our place, but he also had to be truly human in order to die. It sounds like a simple statement, and in many ways it is, but it's profound, because without his death— our sins have not been paid for. So, uh, he had to be true man in order to fulfill the law and to die. Those two things, absolutely necessary. And if he's not true man, he can't do either one of them, and, which means we are in big trouble. So, just to, again to summarize, our Savior had to be true man so that he would be under the law and obligated to obey it perfectly. We call that his active obedience all that he did actively in fulfilling all righteousness in our place. So in Sunday school, we would often say, uh, what did Jesus do to be your Savior? And, you know, the kids would raise their hand and they'd say, Jesus died on the cross to take away my sins. That's true. And that's a pretty good summary of what he did, but it's not all he did. He also lived a perfect life, that perfect life that you and I have not. And that's just as important, too, because it's there that he, he fulfills all righteousness and that he's able to clothe us with his robe of righteousness. So there's that aspect. Obviously, the second one being referenced to his death. He would have a human body and soul to experience suffering and death and hell in our place. We call that his passive obedience. Now, something that's passive means it's done to you, Right. If it's active, I'm the one doing the work. If, it, if it's passive, I'm the one, the work's being done too. So what it, what happened to Jesus that he didn't deserve? Obviously, he died. He died in the stead of sinners. He died the, the death that we deserved. He became a curse on our behalf, and so on and so forth. So that's what we call his passive obedience. Both things necessary, both things part of of his work, and both things need him to be a true man. His active obedience, fulfilling all righteousness, his passive obedience, dying in our place. So, that covers, you know, why he had to be true man. Now, let's flip it around. Why did our Savior, Jesus, why did he have to be true God? In the book of Romans, St. Paul says, for as by the one man's disobedience, that would be a reference to Adam, Adam the many were made sinners. So we talked about how uh, death spread from one man and how death came to all men because all men sinned. We talked about the, the guilt that we inherit from Adam and as as being born in the image of sinful Adam, we are born into this world, sinful dead in our sins and trespasses, blind, hostile, enemies of God, and so on and so forth. But here we see that just as a disobedience, uh, through one man's disobedience, Adam's many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So that perfect fulfillment of the law that would be impossible for us is possible for the one who is, in fact, God in the flesh. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So again, we see that he had to die. But, you know, if, if you were a good man, let's say hypothetically, I were able to keep the law perfectly and uh was with, was without sin and then i were to say well you know what i'm going to i'm going to volunteer to die on behalf of other people how many people could i save by my death none none because i'm just a, another man it doesn't doesn't do the world any good i mean it might do somebody i suppose if somebody sacrifices their life in the line of battle or whatever it might be that's certainly that i don't want to to uh, downplay the significance of that kind of sacrifice but at the end of the day I might be able to save a couple people for a time, but uh, ultimately we, we're all dead, and that's the end of the story. But we place God Himself into the equation. And now that death takes on a whole new significance. Jesus' death is not just the death of another man, it's in fact the death of God in the flesh, which means that His death has salvific value for all people of all places, of all times. All of it, because it's not just a man in the equation. We're talking about God himself. And so this is one of these strange things where some people really wrestle with, can we say that Mary is the mother of God? Uh, Yep. In fact, we can call her the Theotokos, the God-bearer, because the person that she gives birth to is true man, yes, but he is also true God. So she can rightfully be called the mother of God. In the same way, can we say God died on the cross? Y- yeah, we, we can. In fact, we have to. If we don't say that, if we deny it, then we deny something that's foundational to our salvation. If it's just another man who dies on the cross, we have no Savior, and we are still doomed and in our sins. But God himself has died in the person of Jesus Christ, we can say, which is a sort of a, a really big statement to try to wrap our mind around because God is without beginning, he's without end. God doesn't die. But in the person of Jesus Christ, who is true God and true man, we can fact say God died. And we must say that. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. And again, we see the, the benefits of the life and death of this man, this person, Jesus Christ, who is true man and true God, and that his death is sufficient to pay the ransom for all people of all times, of all places. So, again, why did our Savior have to be true God? To fulfill the law perfectly for all sinners, giving them eternal righteousness, and so that his suffering and death would be sufficient for the sins of the whole world, including the suffering of eternal hell for everyone. As he experienced God's abandonment on the cross, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, he, He knew what it was like to be abandoned by God. That's what we deserved on account of our sins. And yet he did that for us, so that we wouldn't have to suffer that fate in hell eternally. Obviously, we'll talk more about how we appropriate the benefits of uh, Jesus Christ in his person and work, his salvific life and death and resurrection in uh, coming episodes and further episodes. So we do hope that you'll join us as we explore more in detail the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is the very heart and core of the entire scripture. So I hope you'll, you'll join us next time. This is Pastor Trent Sari. And I'm Lauren Thompson. It's a smaller audience. Yeah, that's pretty weak.